World Impact. Welcome, Dr. Alvin Sanders, to the pulpit. Okay, I think you can hear me now. You're going to have to turn me down. I'm going to blow you all out today, so you've got to turn me down. It is a privilege and honor to be here today. Um, thankful for Pastor Brian for inviting me to come speak. You know, I've known you all's pastor since 1991. Yes. I remember meeting him because it was at a conference called Impact 91. And um, he had on this black hat with a big X on it because Malcolm X was a popular movie back then with Denzel Washington. I'm glad he got saved. <laughs> but no, it's, it, he, he's a great man of God, and, I, and it's a privilege and honor to, to know him. So I, I am a president of, um, or I should say interim president of World Impact. And you've had the per- person who previously was President Ephraim Smith speak here before. Our ministry, basically what we focus on is empowering urban leaders. And if you want to know more about that, um, Wyatt, who I'm told, Wyatt the intern, Wyatt the intern has, uh, yes, give him a hand. He has these cards and he'll be at the contributor station. But uh, I, I also wanted to just show briefly, if you wanted to, I'm in a tech world, right? So you can go to our website. And I have a little screenshot of our website, which will tell us tell you more about what it what we do. But basically, you can think of us as being a Home Depot. Home Depot used to have the saying, "You can do it; we can help." We are a Home Depot for those who are ministering to those in urban poverty. So that's essentially what we do. And if you want to know more about that, feel free to come talk to me. But today, what we're going to focus on is First Corinthians chapter thirteen. We're going to talk about your love life. Not that one. Okay, that's somebody else. We're going to talk about your other one that you might not know about. So let me offer up a word of prayer before we begin to go into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for being with us and guiding us. And right now, God, I pray that I will decrease and you will increase, that your spirit will fill us. And that we will all hear from you what you have in store for us today. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Seven years ago, on January 20th, something significant happened in my life. And that was I turned 40. That might not be a big thing for you. But it was for me because I never anticipated turning 40. You know, when I was little, I always anticipated turning 18. Or 21, but I never anticipated turning 40. And what I've found over the years is those birthdays with a zero on the end give me moments to pause and think about life. When I turned 20, all I cared about is what other people thought about me, particularly those of the female persuasion. Because I felt like at some point in this decade, I'm probably going to get married. So what do I look like? I used to have the wave hat going. Somebody, if you ain't black, ask somebody who's black, they tell you what the wave cap is. Had to make sure I was on point all the time, every time I left. Because, you know, she might be somewhere. I find at 40, I don't care what none of y'all think about me. If I got to go to the grocery store, I'm out. It don't matter what I got on. My hair ain't combed. I throw a hat on. It's all good. 
And I suppose when I get 60, I'll realize that nobody was thinking about me at all. (laughs) But I'm not there yet, so y'all pray for me. But with each year, I realize how precious life is. Sociologists tell us over the course of a lifetime, there'll be approximately 10 people that change the trajectory of our lives, either forward or backwards, positive or negative. And if we were to sit around and I was to say, hey, make a list of the people who have affected your life. You had a relationship with that person because you had a relationship with them. You are at the place where you are at, either positively or negatively. When I think about that list, person that comes up in, the, in a positive way is, is my first cousin, Cleveland Sanders Jr. We used to call him Lil Cleve. Now, to understand why he comes up on my list, I have to explain something to you, which is my, my family lineage, okay? I want to see if you notice a pattern. I have my mom, who's, who's still alive and still have a great relationship with her. I have my wife, Carolyn, of 23 years. Great relationship with her. I have an older sister. I have a younger sister. I have two daughters. Y'all noticing a pattern here. If you you didn't know what the fog was around me, that's that estrogen cloud. That's just kind of around my life. Nothing against you ladies. I love the ladies, right? I love you. But every now and then you need a testosterone booster to come in and break up the fog. I don't know if y'all are amen church. Don't leave me out here, fellas. Don't, don't you sit up here and act like I'm the only one who needs a testosterone boost. You get in trouble when you leave, but give me some help right now. And what Lil Cleve used to do is when he would find me in, in jail, otherwise known as a tea party, between my older sister and my younger sister, okay, he would grab me out of it. And we'd go to the backyard and throw the football around, do some other testosterone-boosting stuff. And I loved him for it. He was the older brother I never had. And then a number of years ago, I I got the worst call that I could ever get, and that was that Lil Cleve was on his deathbed. He was dying from cancer. The bone marrow transplant didn't take I was four and a half hours away from him. My father was in the hospital room along with my uncle. And he said, hey, if you want to see him alive, you got to drop everything right now. And you got to get down here. And that's what I did. And when I got to that hospital room, I gave little Cleveland an embrace. And then you know what we did? He started talking trash to me about my Steelers because he's a Redskins fan. (laughs) He's on his deathbed. And he's holding my hand. He's got this big smile on his face. Because that's what testosterone is, right? Even to the end, he stays faithful to his team. But I have fond memories of him. And what that illustrates is the power of presence in our lives. Those of us who've lost a loved one, you know what? We may, we may miss their perfume or we may miss their cooking or we may miss... A bunch of things. But you know what you really miss? You miss their presence in your life. That's what you miss. What I wouldn't do for a half hour with Lil' Cleve right now. Just one more half hour. If someone has affected you positively, you miss their presence in such a bad, and in such a good way. Now, here's the opposite of that. Um, 
I actually have an obituary from, from one of the papers in, the, in this area, the Vallejo, California Times newspaper. You may have even read this before because this is an obituary that came out in the August 16th, 2008 edition of it. It's about a woman by the name of Dolores Aquilar, and if I butchered that, I am sorry because I do not speak Spanish very well. But let me read you her obituary. Dolores Aquilar, born in 1929 in New Mexico, left us on August 7, 2008. She will be met in the afterlife by her husband, Raymond, her son, Paul Jr., and daughters, Ruby, Beatrice, Virginia, and Ramona, and son, Billy. Dolores had no hobbies, made no contribution to society, and rarely shared a kind word or deed in her life. I speak for the majority of her family when I say her presence will not be missed by many. Very few tears will be shed and there will be no lamenting over her passing. Her family will remember Dolores and amongst ourselves, we will remember her in our own way, which were mostly sad and troubling times throughout the years. We may have some fond memories of her and perhaps we will think of those times too. But I truly believe at the end of the day, all of us will really only miss what we never had. A good and kind mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. I hope she is finally at peace with herself. As for the rest of us left behind, I hope this is the beginning of a time of healing and learning to be a family again. There will be no service, no prayers, and no closure for the family she spent a lifetime tearing apart. We cannot come together in the end to see to it that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren can say their goodbyes. So I say here for all of us, goodbye, Mom. When I first read that, to be quite honest with you, I said, man, who would put their business out in the street like that? But in this day of reality television, I guess that's to be expected. I've never met Dolores or her family. It's tragic that that's her legacy. My hope for you and for me, is that our, our obituary does not sound like that. And whether this area knows it, talking before with your, one of your leaders, and he told me that this is known as Google country. Could it be that Google country doesn't depend on tech, but it depends on the churches that's in it? Does it depend upon the people who are in this congregation and other congregations that their lives are not like Dolores Aquilar? I think so. When I was turned 40, one of the things I did is I went to the bookstore and I bought this book called Halftime by Bob Buford. And he has this interesting concept. He says, at some point in your life, you've got to change from chasing success to chasing significance. And he says, if you do that, you will find fulfillment of the purpose in which God has for you. Because many of us are very successful, but we're not significant. You can be successful and not be significant. That is possible. And to make sure that that doesn't happen, he suggests that you take a halftime like a good sports team. You go into the locker room, you make some adjustments, and then you come out for what he called the second half of your life to make sure that the activities and the things that you center your life around are significant. So this sermon, what we're going to do is, is we're going to take a halftime together, briefly, a brief halftime. Because what's at, li- what's at stake here is more than just a game. What's at stake is our very lives, not only individually as Christians, but as a congregation. Amen.
I come from a traditional missionary Baptist situation. I see some black people in here. Y'all, y'all been there. I need some amens today. Be nice. Be nice. You can go back to being quiet when Brian come back, but I, I need some amens. I actually preach better if I get some amens. All right. Thank you very much. Here's the scoreboard. Here's, here's the dirty little secret about American Christianity and American church. Here's the scoreboard. It's the three B's. Okay. What's your budget? How pretty is your building? And how many butts are in the seats? Go to any Christian church conference and they're saying that's what success looks like. Butts, budgets, and building. So I got a tour of your building. Your building is it's, it's pretty. It's real pretty. Some butts in the seats. You got enough. And I don't care what your budget looks like. Trust me, as a former inner city urban pastor, you got enough money. I know what no money looks like. I don't think y'all do. Okay? I'm going to tell you that right now. You got enough money. So you got all the boxes checked for success. All right, then. It's halftime. Let's talk about significance. What is God's scorecard for significance? That brings us to our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which reads as follows. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and cannot fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I fought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The scoreboard for Abundant Life Christian Fellowship as a congregation. The scoreboard for you as a personal follower of Jesus Christ is in 1 Corinthians 13. You want to measure your significance? How well are you doing in faith, hope, and love with the greatest being love? The scoreboard for the Corinthians church was spiritual gifts. They were looking at, okay, okay, well, we got all this spectacular stuff happening. And because we have all this spectacular stuff happening, God must be pleased with us. And Paul is talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. But he hits the pause button in 1 Corinthians 13 and say, okay, you got to understand something. You got to change your scoreboard. 
Because all these gifts, that's great. That's wonderful. I'm happy for you. But that's not what God's paying attention to. You can be doing the right things and be the wrong type of person. You can be the biggest, baddest, and best church in the community and not be the biggest, baddest church for the community. Do you understand that? There's a difference. There's a difference. When you look at the churches in Revelation, there were seven of them. All of them got beat down except for one. The smallest. The one that was struggling the most. That is God's scorecard. Not the size, not the struggle, but the heart. The heart. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the heart? This big building right here, if it went away tomorrow and somebody drove by here and it was a field, would they know what was here before it? Because I guarantee you, if there's a McDonald's here and it disappeared, folk would be like, yo, what happened to the McDonald's? Okay? We know this, right? So, what would people say about abundant life? Would they notice you're gone? I'll tell you what, if you major in the three B's, they won't. Oh, good. One of them churches that's taking all our space. Maybe we can get some taxes now out of that group. Maybe they can reopen it back as a warehouse. But my, if you focus on what God focuses on, if you focus on his scorecard of faith, hope, and love with the greatest of these being love, they will know who's here. They will know that this building is just a tool for faith, hope, and love to flow out of it. See, Paul is applying the necessary corrective because the context of our spiritual gifts is the love of others and not our own selfish interests. Paul's teaching here is that the whole point of us being filled with the Holy Spirit and the corresponding spiritual gifts is for us to be a witness of God's kingdom and the love of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying you may be experiencing all of the outward trappings of success by the displaying of your spiritual gifts, Corinthians church, but you are not significant because there's no love present. We know from reading the whole of 1 Corinthians that among the things the Corinthian church tolerated was illicit sexuality, greed, idolatry, and even the destruction of a fellow church member. He talks about in the first verse, a group walking around, making loud noises with percussion instruments. You know that what, what Paul was doing there? He was throwing shade, y'all. Do y'all know that? He was throwing shade. Because Corinth was known as a place where this big religious cult would walk around banging stuff, making loud noise, bringing attention to himself. And Paul is literally saying, right now, you're no better than them. That's what he's saying. You are no better than them. You are just as empty as they are. I mean, that's some pretty heady stuff. That's some pretty hard stuff. And that's stuff that we have to be aware of because we throw the word love around in this culture just on anything. We throw it on our favorite sports teams, right? We throw it on our food. 
There was a commercial a while back where a guy could tell his beer that he loved it, but he couldn't tell his wife. Okay? I've got two daughters. I've got, I've got one, my oldest, Hannah. She's 20, and she's a sophomore at the Ohio State University, for you Buckeyes who are out there. And then I have a younger daughter. She's 17. She's going to be a senior, and she's a little firecracker. Her name is Gabby, and she's a straw that stirs a drink in the Sanders household. Okay? And so one time we were sitting around eating, and I said, mm, I just love this piece of pizza. She said, you know what? If you love it so much, why don't you put a ring on it? Right? But we just, just, we just throw it around. Right? We just throw it around. We love everything. Love everybody. No, we don't. No, we don't. We don't love everything. We don't love everybody. Not in a biblical sense. Because in the biblical sense, love costs you something. I found this out. There'll be 23 years Next month, I'll be married to my wife, Carolyn, and I have never figured out how selfish I was until I got married 23 years ago. Because when I got married, I thought I was going to have a sex kitten who cooked and cleaned for me. And we were about six seconds into the marriage until I figured out that's not how it's going down. Okay? And, and, and Carolyn had been watching all these Disney movies, and she thought that I owned some horse, a stallion, and I had on some armor, and I was going to come sweep her up and throw her on the back, and we go riding into the sunset. And I told her, I own no horse, I own no armor, we walk in wherever we go. <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all been married for a while, y'all understand what I'm saying. You know what the key to marriage is? I can put up with you, and you can put up with me, and we may not love each other at the moment, but we like each other. And I put up with you, and you put up with me, and we might not like each other right now, but we love one another. And we just go through, because it's a choice. You better stop believing all these songs, talk about your feelings, all in your feelings. If you're in your feelings, you won't be married very long. Won't happen. You say choice. Feelings have something to do with it, but it's a choice. That's what love is. It's a choice. I am choosing to go into this situation because I know my presence will make it better. Good, bad, indifferent. That's the love of Christ. That's what he shows. And so we have to ask ourselves as a church, if there's a scorecard and God is looking at us, what is the choices that he wants us to make? Budget butts and buildings are great and they make us successful. And I'm not arrogant enough to think that I can come up with a scoreboard of significance that God could have. I don't know all the categories, but I tell you what, I do know one of them. And that's how we treat the poor. That's how we treat the poor. That's what I've given my life to. And, and, and I'm talking to you about it because um, I feel like it's my responsibility when I talk about our love life, when I talk about our significance as churches in this country, we have got to be countercultural, we've got to go against the grain, and we've got to have love for the least and the last and the lost among us. 
In our book, Envy Up, Scorn Down, How Status Defines Us, Princeton professor Dr. Susan Fisk reveals the results of a study on how Americans view social status. Dr. Fisk states that Americans react to the poor with disgust. Per her research, it's the most negative prejudice people report, even greater than racism. Church, we can't be naive and think that the typical American attitude hasn't crept into our pews. I mean, the sin of the Corinthian church is that they thought that they were all that in a bag of chips, right? You know how we do that, saints? Based on our bank account. Based on our bank account. Based on our zip code. Based on how big our houses are. Based on what type of job we have. And, and I've been in ministry for 26 years. I, I, I was talking to this brother. He's 19 years old. I was like, I am so glad that you have figured out what you want to be at 19. Because I was 21 when I figured out that God called me to ministry. I'm 47 now. And here's and every, every single ministry that I've been a part of pretty much has been in the context of the urban poor. Somehow, some way. And here's what I've learned about the American church. We like to feed them. We like to tutor them. We like to talk about them. We like to blame them. We like to scold them. We like to study them. And we like to raise money off of them. And we love to live and plant churches in neighborhoods of theirs after they gentrify. That's a whole nother sermon. You got to bring me back for that one. But I can't, I can't get into that right now. But if, but if we are honest, I, I got to say to myself, I don't know if we love them. I don't know. I don't know if we love them. And it's a problem because I'm telling you 100% that is on God's scoreboard. Jesus made the poor the center of his earthly ministry from his first recorded sermon in Nazareth in Luke 4, 16 through 21 to his most well-known sermon in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5 and 3, he creates what's called a preferential option for the poor. Fifteen of the parables of Jesus emphasize care for the poor. And his favorite topic, the kingdom of God, contains hope for the poor and a promise of judgment for those who oppress them. We don't use harsh words like judgment much more anymore from the pulpit. But I think we kind of need to get some, some, some clarity in this situation that Jesus expects us as individuals and as a church to do something for the poor. He expects us to love them. A clear testimony of a preferential option comes from Galatians 2 and 5, where Paul describes a request from the apostles. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Church, there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing good works amongst the poor. But if we are talking about winning amongst the poor, we have to do what Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know why? It goes back to what I told you about with little Khalif. Presence. I think we underestimate what God's presence does. If we know 10 people in our lives change the trajectory of our life, my goodness, what does God's presence in our lives change? 
I have never met someone who has truly met God and who hasn't changed. Notice I didn't say they're perfect. I'm saying they hadn't changed. When I pastored in the hood, I was a hard pastor. I was a Marine pastor. And we would have an altar call and people would come down and they would give their lives to Christ. And they say, pastor, I'm saved. You know what I say? We'll see. (laughs) Now you might think that's being mean. We'll see. We'll see if you, you start having a relationship with all them baby mamas you have out there. We'll see if you start taking care of those kids you got out there. We'll see if you start showing up here every Sunday. We'll see if you start going to your mentor for your Bible studies and your discipleship process. We'll see with what little money you bring to the, to the, to the storehouse that you actually tithe on it. We'll see if you're truly changed. Some of y'all are like, man, I'm glad he went my pastor. I'm glad too. How about that? I'm sick. Listen, when you're in the hood, you gotta be serious. Some of y'all can dig around for all your life. You got plenty of money. You okay? These people ain't okay. They gotta change. You can't play around. One time I got done preaching and I went in my office and there were two people sitting in my office and they had their crack pipes and they put it down and they say, Pastor, we're done. Take us to recovery. It's not a joke. And if we get too much money and we get too much of the American dream in us, we think it's a joke. We think it's a joke. And it's not. It's not a joke in the hood. Is that a joke out here? And that's why I admonish you that at least for one of the things on the scoreboard that I know that God wants you all involved in is to take a halftime and to take a look individually and as a corporate body and say, what are we doing to take responsibility for the poor in the peninsula, in the South Bay area, in Google country, in Facebook country, in the Bay area, whatever y'all call it. Are you taking a responsibility for the least and the last amongst you? Now, if I hadn't gone over my time, we could have the brother come up here and play on the Hammond B3. We could have a good time. But I can't do that. And we're going to pause and give an altar call for those who have been touched by this message. Whether you need to give your life to Christ for the first time or whether you know that you haven't been living well and living righteous and you want to see a personal turnaround in your face, I invite you to come forward right now and do business with the Lord. If you know that you have been touched and you don't have a preferential option for the poor in your life. And, and, and you know that Jesus says to have one and you want direction on, on what to do. Come forward now. This is your invitation to come forward in prayer. So let's just, you can come forward now if you want to come forward. Kneel right here. And we will have a prayer for those 
who want to come, come forward right now. Yes. Anyone wants to join her, just come forward and kneel down. Pastor, do we have church members who minister with them? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to start by thanking you for these, these three souls who've made a public declaration of some sort. We pray that your spirit will move amongst them, that you would guide them, that the people of this great congregation will take them under their wing and disciple them. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would intervene in their lives and in their heart. Thank you that you've touched them already through this sermon and pray that they would grow from that. And Lord, I pray for this congregation. This is a faithful group, Lord. I know their story. I'm glad they are here. I'm glad for their heart. I pray that your spirit will continue to move amongst them. I pray, God, individually, that they'll discover their purpose and their destiny. And I pray, Lord, that collectively they will become the church for this community in the best way possible. We ask for your spirit to lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.